Welcome to the Blind Boy podcast number 48. If uh, if you're hearing this, if you're hearing this, it means that I am currently in Spain and the room that I have in Spain has got terrible acoustics. So I've had to post this episode as the emergency backup because there's no way I would do a podcast from Spain in a room full of tiles where there's nothing but reverberation. It would sound like gogs. So that's what this one is. But first, before I continue, I would like to read a piece of short prose that was sent in to me by Hollywood actor Barry Pepper. Quentin's in the kitchen, preparing a fool. It's a dessert named after an idiot. His hands shake as he massages the fool. His mind wanders back to the deserts of Kuwait, 1991. The orange flames are a thousand children screaming. The clouds rain down aisle. He looks at his boots. He's back in the kitchen, preparing a fool. There was a piece of prose there called Desert Desert, Desert Desert by uh, Barry Pepper. Thank you very much, Barry, for sending that in. So here's the crack. Um, I'm over in fucking Spain and can't record a podcast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a live podcast. And this is, this was recorded about six months ago. And it is myself and the magzif- magnificent Vincent Brown. And Vincent is... He's a journalist, TV presenter, but he's, most importantly, he's just a very aggressive voice of truth. Vincent, in his uh, fearlessness and tenacity in calling out power and fucking going head-to-head with power, he kind of, he's like an old-school lad that reminds all of us young people that the importance of... um, understanding that just because someone is a politician or just because someone is in a position of power that you have every fucking right to ask them why and to hold them to account and that's what Vincent does and that's what he's done his entire career fearlessly holds people to account and he is a terrifying figure if you're on the wrong side of him so this interview it was in LIT Limerick Institute of Technology in the theatre there it was about six months ago and special thanks to Limerick School of Art and Design the f- uh, photography film and video course and also the audio visual course in LIT for making this happen and just a general big shout out to Limerick School of Art and Design I did my degree there I did my masters there and they've been nothing but supportive of me uh, ever since so yeah this is myself and Vincent Brown and I think we're both a little bit pissed and then we sober up because they put a lot of wine into my dressing room and I was drinking it then Vincent came out and I got a kind of a feeling that he had a bit of wine as well and we needed to find our feet after a while but uh, what I like about this is that this was in front of a fucking packed audience there must have been seven, eight hundred people but it had the intimacy of a conversation between two people you know Um, I won't be doing like an ocarina pause Will I? I won't be. I won't be doing a full ocarina. My fucking place is falling apart. I won't be doing a full ocarina pause in this because I'm going straight into the interview. I'll play the ocarina for two seconds. 
Actually, I might fucking buy a new ocarina in Spain. I think that's what I'll do because I got this last one in Spain as well. I'll get a bigger one. But so before I go into the interview, uh, like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and if you feel so inclined, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, um, via the Patreon page. So if you if you like the podcast and you would like to donate to it and give me, we'll say, the price of a pint once a month for creating content, please do. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. So here is an interview with myself and Vincent Brown. God bless you guys. Would you ever think of going maybe online, Vincent? Because if, if you had, a, we'll say, a YouTube show, you can go wild with that, you know? Because I always felt with you, I felt that there was this spirit inside in you that was always held back by the bullshit rules of television. Um, no, I, I, I have a project now which I've wanted to do for years and it's part of a larger project. The larger project is um, to write something about the illusion of Irish freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make the point that people fought for freedom. But freedom for what? How were the mass of people less free uh, after we got independence than they were prior to then? Uh, they were still subject sub- they were still uh, enslaved by poverty, by misery, by, un- by unemployment or by employment um, and in so many ways. And the, the idea of freedom really was made a nonsense of. And certainly some people in, from Clongos or Munchens or whatever, or Glenstall, did well um, and got um, status jobs. But for the mass of people, I think that to talk about freedom was a nonsense. That uh, the uh, social system, which was already there, continued even with greater cruelty after independence uh, than before that. So you're talking about uh, freedom of economic mobility, the freedom to, that, uh, yeah. to escape what yeah. you're born into. Yeah, yeah, all of that, yeah. Because um, it's interesting, I was talking to a historian last week and he was talking about the, the ethos of common the nail and how they had set up, how they wanted to set up the idea of an Irish ruling class once the British left. Um, when, you, when you talk about, do you mean that you, you, you feel that the, we'll say the, the, the War of Independence 1922 did not give us something more socialistic? Do you feel it went too capitalistic? Um, yeah, you could put it that way. Um, but the, the people who, um, for instance, W.T. Consgrave, who was the first Taoiseach president, the executive council, uh, he, in, in the, during the War of Independence in 1921, he wrote, he wrote to Austin Stack, who was supposedly Minister for Local Government in this make-believe government they had at the time, complaining about people who, who came from the poor houses. And saying that they were never any, go- they were never going to do anything in their lives. They were no good. They just wanted to live off the rest of society. And the, the more of them that emigrated, the better. Yeah. That was the mindset that informed much of the new of the first government that came into office. The second government, the Fianna Fáil government uh, that came into office in 1932, was a, a bit more left wing than the previous government had been. Um, and a lot of good things were done in the early 30s in spite of the fact that there was an economic war and things were very difficult economically. Um, but then they too sort of succumbed to the mindset that had been there previously. And I suppose you could call it a capitalist mindset. Yeah. Uh, where, 
and people control the lives of other people and where a, a mass of people really live in misery. And that was, it was like a million people left Ireland from independence onwards. So what was freedom? What, was the, what did freedom mean, mean to them? Yeah. It didn't mean anything. And they, were, they were escaping the, the awfulness of, of Ireland. Just think of, of people in mental institutions mm -hmm. and think of what was done to them during all those times. There was an act passed in 1945, the Mental Health Act in 1945, and it required the government to publish every year a, a report by the Inspector of Mental Hospitals, to publish it every year, and it gave a special authority to the President of the High Court to ensure that it was published. This, the purpose of this was to ensure that the people would know the conditions in which people were living in the mental hospitals. Mm -hmm. For, from 1945, until 1967, no report was published. It was, the report was done okay, but never published. And nobody, not the President of the High Court uh, during that time, not any minister, not any TD or anybody else, raised the issue of what was going on. Why weren't these reports published? And I got to see some of those reports, and they describe a really appalling conditions in which people, uh, in which people lived in mental hospitals. And indeed, Long, long afterwards, people in mental hospitals lived in a truly appalling conditions. I saw one in St. Peter's in, in uh, Portran in Dublin. It just was appalling. And people um, living in dormitories with maybe a foot between the beds, mm -hmm. with a tiny little knocker, and that was all the people's presence, uh, possessions. Not even a curtain between the beds. So there's no, no privacy, no dignity, no anything. These are, these are people in mental hospitals. When you think of people in the Michael and Laundries, for instance. Of course. And all the chimneys, and, uh, and, all, and the children as well. The, the children in reformatories. All of that, the children in, are, are, are people in, in prisons, prison conditions were pretty terrible too. All of it, this was misery for so many people. Anyway, the I'm assuming, I'm assuming, Vincent, that it was, like I know what Magdalene and Laundries, it was targeted at the poor, Yes. More so than people who came from good families, we'll say, in inverted commas. That it was the girls who came from the poor families that were more likely to end up in the Magdalene Laundry. And I'm guessing this was the same thing with the mentally ill. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, but, and industrial uh, schools, of course. If you, were a, yeah. if you were a young lad and you were misbehaving, if you came from the wrong family, yeah. you were sent to an industrial school. If you came from a good family, you were given the freedom. Yeah. yeah. Um... um my mother was um, born in Glasgow. Our mother and father had, had um, come from Monaghan, and um, her mother had four children, uh, or five children. And uh, when my mother was three or so, uh, her, her father was killed in a brawl in a stockyard in Glasgow. And they were living in a tenement in Glasgow, and they had to come back to Valley Bay in County Monaghan. And one of the children was deaf and dumb. Only was his name. And because of the culture at the time, he was kept in a back room. And the family was ashamed of him. And just think of what that, that did to his mind. Mm -hmm. And then he was sent to a mental hospital in Monaghan Town. And uh, a cousin of mine, also a grandchild, a, a grand a, a nephew of, of um, a, a, or an actual nephew of Oni, uh, and I, who's also a nephew of Oni, and we found out about him uh, from details in, uh, in Monaghan Mental Hospital. 
and the conditions in which he lived for so many years. And that family, my, I'm sure my family is no worse than many other families. That was the culture of the time. So you say that um, it was the conditions mental hospitals was uh, that people in mental hospitals came from poor families. Yes, to a large extent, but they also came from rich families. People who were ashamed of them, and who wanted them out of the way. And it was really something uh, pretty horrific. Also, the Catholic Church did so much damage. That's what I was going to bring up. Um, this notion of, uh, when you're speaking about, you know, w we didn't get the freedom post-independence. Do you feel that's because too much power was handed to the church and they restricted freedom? Uh, yes, that, that was uh, that was largely the case. I, people go on about partition, and the, re the reason we had partition essentially was because a large number, a million Protestants in Northern Ireland didn't want to be part of the Ireland... <coughs> Uh, believing that home rule would be Rome rule. And by God, they were right. Yeah. And that, uh, just think of how miserable it would have been for them if they had been uh, coerced into a united Ireland uh, during all these things. Now, what they did Well, to, it's possible they would have been uh, incredibly demonised. You know, oh, would... absolutely, yeah. But, of course, what they did to the Catholics in Northern Ireland was pretty appalling too. Yeah. And that's inadequately understood as well because that's what gave rise to the conflict later on. Uh, they, uh, a rising anger among the Catholic communities there that was, that was abandoned by the South. The South didn't want to know about them. Yes. Um, I'm writing about that at the moment. And representations, there was a group that have campaigned for, for social democracy in Northern Ireland, uh, started by a GP actually in Duncan, he and his wife were very much involved. Conor McCluskey was his name. And others were involved. And they, uh, they published pamphlets, they did studies on the scale of discrimination scale in housing, in the gerrymandering, in employment, and all that. And the southern government just didn't want to know anything about it. And made it clear to them, just go away, stop annoying us. Yeah. And, and that's, this, that attitude and the sense of abandonment that the northern community felt, abandoned by their, what they saw as their own people in the south, led to the frustration and the anger that eventually exploded in late 1960, in the late 1960s into 1970s caused the horror of the conflict mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland. Um, it's mad how some of the stuff you're talking about, how we can, we can still see that rippling today. Like in, we'd say the mental health crisis in Ireland at the moment, like the, uh, access to mental health is atrocious in Ireland at the moment, treatment is atrocious. But it's specific, it, it affects people with less money more. Oh, yes. People, like, if you have a mental health issue in this country, um, the best access, the best access, the best uh, treatment that's available is either charities or if you can afford it, going down the private route. Um, if you can't afford that, then you're essentially, the system says, fuck off. Similarly, uh, <coughs> the Eighth Amendment in this country... Um, the fact that women don't have access to abortion in this country, but if you're poor, you cannot afford to go over to England. You know, and so we still see this rippling of how the, the, the system affects people with less money. Still. Yeah, there's a report published in 2002, it was called Inequalities and Mortalities. And it showed that for all the killer diseases, uh, including cancer, and, and the varieties of cancer, that people in the lowest income bracket as compared to the highest income bracket died 
and if the mortality rate was far higher, people in the lower, lowest income bracket. In one case, in one of the cancers, I can't remember which it was, it was 30 times higher yeah. um, for people in the lowest income bracket. And so that inequality persisted even into, unto death, and it was a, a massive issue. You know, talk about the Eight Amendments, and thinking about it nowadays, and that this reflects, of course, a misogyny. Mm-hmm. And Mary McAleese um, put it about that the Catholic Church is an empire of misogyny. And that's certainly true. And that, and that infected our minds uh, uh, very crucially as well. Um, but other factors, it wasn't just the Catholic Church that did, did that to us. There are other uh, factors that do with misogyny as well. And one of the... Um, Argument, sorry, essentially the argument against the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, in my view, is misogynistic. Yeah. And it is that people just don't think that women who are pregnant are in a unique situation, or babies who are um, in, this, in the womb of a pregnant woman are a unique situation because they uniquely are dependent on a particular person for their sustenance. And there are often cases where the woman, who's, where the person who gives, gives substance to this being just can't do it. Yeah. And just for various reasons, just can't do it. So for whatever reason, like say she has five other children, the husband has left her, she's in desperate state, and she just can't go on with it, can't go on with it. And, and she can't give sustenance to that other person. No man is ever in that situation, ever. It's impossible. And they, and the, uh, the, uh, the attitude in our society is, well, fuck her. <clears throat> Too bad. She's got to, under pain of criminal sanction, she's got to give her body to the sustenance of that person, irrespective. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> Um, do you feel that, like, because I was always of the opinion regarding, we say, I, I thought Ireland was quite left after independence, and it wasn't until the 50s with um, Ireland voted that China should be allowed to enter the UN in the 50s, and at that moment, a message was sent to the Bishop of uh, Boston to tell the bishops in Ireland that the, Ireland, the Irish are gone too left wing and need to denounce communism from the Catholic Church. So is, is that a myth? Was, was Ireland not left before the 50s? Ah, that's just no, no, that's no? That was just a, 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 just a, a blip. Um, it, had, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it had no particular significance. The, the Catholic Church went a bit berserk about it, but so what? Um, and they went berserk about a lot of things. I, there's a, in John Cooley's biography of uh, John Charles McQuaid, who was the most powerful um, bishop there has been in Ireland since independence. That He's the lad who wrote the Constitution. Well, not quite, but you know. Um, <laughs> but this fellow complained to the editor of the Irish Independent that who had uh, shown an advertisement of a woman in a swimsuit and he had taken out a magnifying glass and seen uh, th- that, th- that under the magnifying glass he could see a semblance of a pubic hair. And now imagine the mindset that would take a magnifying glass to, to look at this. And 
he demanded that no such uh, advertisement would appear again. I just think of that bloody Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> Without him seeing the absurdity of it. It's very absurd, yeah. Um, but anyway, the... the um, well, if you have to take out a magnifying glass if you're looking at photographs of nudie women, then what does that say? Well, it, it wasn't a nudie woman. It was a woman in full bathing costume, so far and all. A body almost entirely covered, except for this bit of pubic hair. <laughs> and, uh, there's no pubic hair anymore, but... <laughs> um, were you ever held back from pursuing a guest on your show by the producers or editors? No. No? No one ever said, here, chill out, Vincent? No. Um, Next question. <laughs> what do you think are the, the main political falls of the last decade? Ah, yes. Um, um, the main problem, the, 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 we have, uh, politics here is a circus. And, and, and they're saying that for this reason. That politics is supposed to be about competing ideas about the kind of society we have and the kind of policies we should have. But there's no divergence of view at all in it. Sinn Féin looks as though they might be, uh, might offer a different view, but now they've, they're so domesticated and are so keen to join the establishment on whatever terms there are on offer for them, they're the same. So you have the Sinn Féin, of course, the Labour Party has gone away. Yeah, one yeah, hope, yeah. One hopes. Um, they, they, if Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and if you ask anyone, well, can you find any difference between them? Like you need a magnifying glass and an archbishop to find it. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the subject of that, someone asked me uh, if you think a, main, a mainstream left-wing youth movement like they currently have behind Corbyn in the UK is possible in Ireland. <coughs> and who would you see as, as potentially even leading that? Are there any candidates? Well, I think it's wrong to, t to think in terms of leaders. And because if there's leaders, there are followers, and followers are, are sort of, um, when you think about followers, they're sort of gobshites who can't think for themselves. So, so but, but basically, we've got to argue for a different, uh, um, a, a different mindset. We've, I, I've made this point a number, of, uh, a number of times previously, and I'm sure some of the people whom I cannot see, none of whom I can see from here, which I think is deliberate. But, um, <laughs> um, but um, that slavery was regarded as in the natural order of things for millennia, thousands and thousands of years. In fact, uh, human beings have been around for 200,000 years. Certainly for 150,000 years, slavery was regarded as the natural order of things. Some people were born to be masters, some people were born to be slaves. That's the way it is. For, for certainly for 10,000 years, and I'll explain why I say only 10,000 years in a moment, um, people believed that women were, if not the property of men, they were under the control of men or should be under the control of men, and that they were incapable of. Um, of being in positions of power or authority or whatever. And 
It's only in the last very short time. When you think about it, the spectrum of 200,000 years, it's only in the period of, say, the last 20, 30 years that people have begun to change their minds about women, and women have got some degree of equality, but it's, it's still far short of uh, actual equality. And, uh, and, of course, slavery was ended. And it was... The and this was represented a transformation of mindsets. That suddenly people thought, no, slavery isn't a natural order of things. There's something inherently insidious about slavery. It's wrong. Similarly, with regard to the treatment of women, there's something seriously insidious about it. And the feminist movement, of course, is hugely important in, in um, uh, alerting us to that. Um, something insidious about the way we the equal way we treat women, and that we still do, and that us men still regard women and talk about women. When you look at the a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Trawling in Belfast of these women, uh, of the uh, of the fellows who were accused of raping that woman, irrespective of who you think was uh, guilty, whether you think they're guilty or not, but the way they talked about it, the text about her yeah. the following day, that is a mindset which is which is prevalent among a lot of us men still, and particularly in the rugby fraternity, that women out there almost just sex toys uh, for uh, for us men. So, anyway, the point I'm making is that mindset, and you could call it ideology, is really what it's all about. And that if you don't change people's mindsets, nothing will change. That has happened regarding slavery, it happened regarding women, and a lot of other things. And that's what we've got to do with regard to our politics here. We've got to change mindsets. We've got to open the possibility. Yes, it's possible to create an equal society. It's possible to have people earning more or less equal, equal incomes, to have equal access to health care, to have equal access to education, etc., etc., etc. But we're millennia away from it. Yeah. And, but until we started and still I start arguing about it or whatever, yes, it will take 100, 200, 300 years for that to come about. But unless we start arguing about it or arguing for it and talking about it and talking about the possibilities of it, it won't happen. Do you think something such as... <laughs> something such as the, the water protest movement got us close as a people to realising that? I had ambivalent feelings about that. That... that and, I'm, I'm, and I have more than ambivalent feelings about the left. Um, and the reason for that is the left is afraid to argue the case for equality, and to argue, for instance, the case for virtually equal incomes. Um, and the reason they're afraid to, get, to argue for that is because they feel they'll lose votes. And, the, and of course they're right, they will lose votes. Because if you argue for um, equal incomes, you talk about very high taxation, um, and people are adverse to that. But we've got to be able to, we've got to persuade people 
that it need more, much more equal societies in, in the interest of us all. Um, like we are terribly, I've argued this for years, we are a very, very rich society. As in terms of households, um, we, the average, the, the, if you divide the number of the, the wealth the GDP of our society by the number of households, the average, it comes out about 100,000 euros per household. Now, I'm saying 30,000 of that has got to go on taxation and all that. So you've 70,000 left. I think that's more enough. That's okay. Most, most households could live on 70,000 a year. But of course, that, that isn't what we have here. Um, anyway, the point I'm making is the left refuses to argue for and accepting and taking on issues like the water, water birth, which are easy to take on, but they then won't argue for very significant increases in taxation, arguing that, why this is necessary to create the kind of society that they say they want. And in other words, the left cop out. So they go for more of a centrist type of thing, so as not to... Well, they don't. They actually just say, say sound. Another fact about the left is they don't <coughs> elaborate their... their None of them really have, I'm talking about people before profit in the Socialist Party or the Solidarity Party now, and other, and other left-wing groups. They don't spell out how the changes in the society that they want is going to be paid for. They, they won't do that because they know they'll lose votes and they'll lose seats. And, and that's the way it is, of course they will. And the only way they gain seats is through populist movements like the water charges or whatever. And this is a pity because you, we won't be able to change people's mindsets unless we're honest about an upfront. Unless there's an honest conversation. Yeah. Um, what are your opinions on, we'll say, emerging technologies, right? Uh, and the case for universal basic income. If, if so many jobs are being replaced by robots, therefore universal basic income, that, that gives the case for it. Like if you look at, just walk into Dunn's or Tesco, you know, we're buying things off robots now, you know, the, the checkout people don't exist anymore. <coughs> so those profits are still going to the top, but they're not paying the wages for them because it's a robot. So should we tax the robots? I mean, we tax some robots, like bankers and... and <laughs> <laughs> um, I always thought it was funny, but the, the bankers thing, the argument was you have to pay them you have to pay them huge salaries if you, if they say if you pay um, if you pay uh, oh fuck, what's the cliche <laughs> it's, it's, um, if you pay peanuts you get monkeys mm -hmm. and uh, we pay them fortunes we still got monkeys <laughs> and, um, um, sorry what was the question again <laughs> should we tax the robots Vincent I think that and if we, technological, technological change is inevitable and is welcome. And that a lot of really dreary jobs, just think of if you're working in down stores at a checkout point, and that's what you do every day for six or seven days a year, a week. Maybe if you're lucky, maybe you don't know whether you're going to get work this week or next week or whatever. But think of what a misery those jobs are. And think of how if we had a really equal society, how people could flourish in doing things that are creative and liberating and, 
And so we shouldn't be afraid of technology. We should say, yeah, this is an advantage. And of course, a, a start-up point would be a basic income thing, but eventually something close to equal income for yeah. everyone. Yeah. And one of the great successes we have in this society is the GA. Mm -hmm. I think it is really a remarkable in institution. And it's founded because primarily lads on... will play without, without on, needing the money. Yeah, but also on voluntary work by so many people. And there, uh, people say, oh, you've got to incentivize people and give them loads of money. No, you don't. There are other incentives in life, and such, such as people who contribute so much to the GA. And we don't sort of think, well, Jesus, how can that be such an amazingly successful and great organization based on voluntary work? Because they're incentivized. There's, some, there's a joy in doing that. There's sense, uh, fulfillment in doing that. And we've got to see, see incentives in terms of that rather than purely in financial terms. Of course, financial terms have uh, financial incentives have some point to play, but it's got out of hand. Yeah. Um, what do you, like, uh, the argument that the government will, will make that uh, will say about the multinational corporations, uh, the idea that they will not come to Ireland unless they have this pretty, pretty fucking easy corporation tax. What's your opinion on that? Should, should we be taxing Apple properly, taxing of course Google? So. Of course. Because so. I, I think that's like a collective sense of low self-esteem. We've got a highly educated English-speaking workforce. I think Google should be happy that they're here. Well, why don't we have an Irish... What is there that we haven't created? The only thing that is worked on corporate level in Ireland in the last... There's the two strike fights from Limerick. Is Ryanair. Yeah. What other international company has made, uh, you know, has made such a mark? Strike. And Do you know the two strike lads? That, uh, the Collison brothers. So they're these two lads. They're, Jesus, they were about 17 years of age. They were going to Castle Strike College in Limerick. And they created a company called Strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar yeah. enough to yeah. PayPal. But I don't know. I mean, are there any strike offices in Ireland? No, the boys have just fucked off and become San Franciscans. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, there are no Franciscans anymore in Limerick, aren't there? Long There's long. no Franciscans in Limerick, no. Yeah. What have we got? There's a... Across from where the lobster pot used to be, what's the... There's no monks. There, there, there's a... The Redemptress is still here. The Redemptress is still here, yeah. and there's the two lads, the, the two... Yeah. The monks in my Ross that are doing great work. You don't remember the Redemptress, um, I assume, when they were in their full flight, full flight. But they scared the bejazes out most of us when we were growing up. Really? Uh, shouting and roaring about the fires of hell and all that. And they could I, be I'd right. A, I had a buddy, and he went to the Redemptress church. And at the back of the Redemptress church, they had this giant, uh, like an oil tank. And this is where all the holy water in Limerick came from. <laughs> so my buddy was about 10 years of age. And he went into the Redemptress because he had a very inquisitive mind. And he asked one of the monks, he said, look, what's the crack with the, that giant drum of water? Like, do you have to bless it every day? How is all that water holy? And the monk, anyway, showed him that they had an actual ball cock in this giant drum of holy water. And apparently there was a, a level at the bottom was continually blessed water. <laughs> and they had it figured out. The theory was that the blessing of Christ would imbue the rest of the water. And then the whole drum became holy. So then my, my little buddy asked, he said, all right, okay, well, if, when that evaporates then, does that not just go into the clouds and make all water holy? And he got kicked out of the church. 
What's your view about all that? Huh? What's my view about about religion? About religion? I wouldn't have a hell of a lot of time for religion. I mean, um, I respect people's rights to practice it. I I, I do believe that people should um, have the freedom to practice it. Yeah, but do you believe in God? I don't know what God is. I certainly don't subscribe to religion. Um, I wouldn't be so arrogant as to go straight up calling myself an atheist. Um, I, I, I think our, our understanding of time is flawed. We, we view time as something that starts and finishes, whereas the likes of quantum physics would tell us that time is most likely circular. So I think we could be living in a, a simulation, like a video game. Do you know, that, that's what I think, is, is that we're a big giant joke on, some, on someone's computer in another universe. So we're not really here at all? Or we might, might not be here at all, or, or that... Um, this, is a, this is a mirage. Where, a mirage, yeah, and consciousness, you know, reality is created. Look at you, you, you uh, at the moment, actually, I think. I think it's probably... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, regarding me and religion, sure, I fucking... I nearly got banned from RTE because I called Communion Way for haunted bread. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I do, in, in, I enjoy religion uh, as entertainment. I, I love to crack open, no seriously, I like to crack open the Bible as a, <coughs> an artifact of mythology. Like, you know, I was only, like, reading last week about the Tower of Babel. Uh, do you know the story of the Tower of Babel? I do. Uh, it's it phenomenally interesting. Do you, do you know about the Tower of Babel? It's a story from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is grey crack because it's nuts. But... <laughs> It's, it's how the, the Bible explains how God invented language. And basically there was a, a town, Babylon, which is now Iraq. And the inhabitants of Babylon were like, fuck it, heaven sounds class. Let's build a building so high that we can go up there. So the residents of Babylon built this giant tower and it got as far as the clouds. So then God was upstairs in heaven going, fuck me, the humans are fucking, the humans are nearly at my door with their tower. What am I going to do? They can't just climb to heaven. So God invented all the world's languages so that the builders of this tower could no longer communicate. And then the building stopped. And when the Irish were told that story of the Tower of Babel by St. Patrick, we had, when the, the Irish monks got a hold of it, the Irish had imbued that story and written the Irish language into the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Because when the Irish heard about Christianity, of course, there was no mention of Paddy in it at all. So the Irish started to write themselves into the Bible. And one of the things they did with the Tower of Babel is that they wrote a little extra bit on the end that said that when, when God made all the other languages, he got the best bits of all lang languages and made the Irish language. <laughs> and it was these type, of, these type of stories that the Irish monks made were one of the reasons that the Brits used originally for invading us. Uh. It's true. <laughs> you should read up about St. Brendan. He gave fucking communion wafer to a whale. <laughs> and the, uh, the, the, the Normans, the, the Brit Normans used a fella called Geraldus, who was a, a historian, a historian of Ireland. He wrote a book called Topographica Hibernica. And in this book, he just basically said, look at what the Irish are doing to Christianity. They're gone stone mad. And then he wrote that in Latin, took it to Pope Adrian, who was a British Pope. He wrote a thing called the fucking, the papal bull Lord Billiter, which was the permission for the Normans to invade Ireland because of what we'd done to Christianity. Are there any historians here? No, good. Because that, <laughs> that might be a little bit off. 
They said the Bible was great, the Old Testament was great crack. No, it isn't. It's oh, it's no, it's, 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 I mean, if you touch Mount Sinai, you get stoned to death. But, uh, uh, that might be a bit of crack, but what it says, <laughs> what it says about women is, oh yeah, horrendous. It's utterly insidious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the book of Leviticus, which is the third, uh, third book, as the uh, fourth book of the Bible is Genesis, and then Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and something else, uh, Pentateuch. But, um, it is, uh, it, it, a part of it says that for a man to touch a woman who's having a period is an abomination. Mm-hmm. And now just think of, of people believing that and think of what they think of women. Yeah. Isn't it just so insidious? And it's actually poisonous. Um, I know Paul Jarkin, the poet, and um, I was talking about the, about the religion in the Old Testament law. And he said it is poison in the well of civilization. Yeah. And it is. And I mean, that's not a popular view, but um, but I, I regard. Fuck them. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's the thing, you know. We're entitled. To, uh, I would like to see a society where we're entitled to have this view about religion, and other people are free to practice it, so long as, like, I'd be a big fan of secular secularism. You know, do what you want with your religion. Eat your holy bread. Eat your fucking haunted bread. Believe that you're eating the ghost of a 2,000-year-old carpenter. Just get it out of my laws, please. Do you know? It's it, not the ghost. What is it? And what is the actual? It's the actual 2,000-year-old carpenter that you've seen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you seem fairly on the ball with your religion there. Is that from your school days? No, I, I got a... Um, I, I, was, I was interested in religion because it's so, such a powerful influence in societies, not yeah. just in this society, but generally... And you really can't understand our, our culture without understanding religion or understanding Christianity and Judaism. Um, and I persuaded RTE uh, to allow me to do a program every night for some years on the Bible. And it forced me to read the Bible. And um, in the interest of balance... No, no, it was no, no, I, there was no balance at all in the program. <coughs> um, <coughs> but it, I, I, I found it very interesting, but also scary. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't, un, uh, I don't understand how other people who are much more intelligent than me and who are much finer, decent, more decent people than I, um, can subscribe to religion, but. That's it. How are you about the New Testament? How do you feel about the Word of Christ? <coughs> I, similarly, um, uh, I, I don't, I, I cannot see what, uh, I, uh, the veneration of Jesus, I do not understand why. He said nothing new, like this thing that <coughs> love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, um, this was said a thousand years previously by the Egyptians. And nothing of any consequence did he say that was new. And so what the hell? What is it? But also, I find it surprising that somebody tomorrow, maybe somebody tomorrow will tell somebody else about this conversation we're having. And almost certainly they'll get it wrong. Yeah. Tomorrow. Yeah. Now, about Jesus, um, the uh, three of the Gospels, Mark, Luke and um, Matthew, were written 
between 30 and 50 years after yeah. he died. Yeah. And the Gospel of John was written about 80 years after he died. Now, how likely is it that they, they're just making a, a lot of it up? Did no fucking the, paper. Did exact, no, yeah. exact quotations. It's just ridiculous. There are no tape recorders or either in flower pots or elsewhere. <laughs> um, um, and so, um, and, and also the, the, those Gospels were written very much to agendas. Uh, there were, there were uh, dissensions within, the, within early Christendom. For instance, on the issue of um, whether you had to become a Jew uh, first in order to become a Christian. Yeah. And that was a, a big issue. Um, I'm struck by a, a theory that the reason Christianity got up and running was because the Romans and Constantine and then later emperors were very concerned about the factionalism uh, in the Roman Empire due to uh, different religions. And they were very keen to get a monotheistic religion because um, monotheism, because there'd be less, like, there'd be no more arguments about my God is better than your God and all that. Um, the, by the way, the... Uh, the uh, there, there's a, a sociological argument that's made that monotheism developed at a time when humans started to live in larger communities. That when you look at when humans were polytheistic, it's when we were hunter-gatherers, when we relied upon the forces of nature, the sun, the wind, the moon, that these things influenced our lives. And when we grew into societies that had la large, amount, large populations, over a thousand, that monotheism creeped in because it echoed the political system that would be necessary to govern that amount of people. Well, I don't know if that's true. Um, uh, I, I, th I think that um, religions got codified uh, or in about 10,000 years ago at the time of the agricultural revolution, which I think is quite significant, um, because then private property came into play. Yeah. And the notion of surplus. And, 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 um, uh, and private property uh, demanded that men control women's sexuality. Yeah. And, uh, and this was because men wanted to be sure that their, their property would go to their offspring, not somebody else, not some other fellow's offspring. So they had to control women's sexuality. And, and then religion came to the aid of that. Uh, religion was formed around that idea. Yeah. And, um, and the early books of the Old Testament are polytheistic. They, they acknowledge the beliefs in other religions, etc. So, and that would, have, that would have happened later on. Um, but, but anyway, let me just... Just, me, can, can I get... Yeah, yeah. We have an interesting point of what you said there about 10,000 years ago. Regarding, we'll say... Uh, when property became a thing with the agricultural revolution. That's also when dogs and cats, right? That's when cats became domesticated. Like cats nowadays are not fully domestic, but dogs are. We domesticated dogs when there were wolves about 30,000 years ago when we were hunter-gatherers. It's only when we had uh, agriculture and then the idea of surplus, being able to hold on to grain, that vermin became a problem. And then we start to domesticate cats. And that's why cats today are still kind of pricks. Because <laughs> we've had an extra 30, 40,000 years to breed dogs to be friendly. But cats are still kind of, I'm only 10,000 years old, bud. Fuck you. <laughs> I'll, half, I'll half play with you.
I haven't heard that before. It yeah. sounds it sounds plausible. Uh, I, you're, I big kept, your, you're big into your history. I accept that you know more about cats than I do. Um, <laughs> you're big into your history. Uh, well, I just, um, I'm not claiming uh, But anyway, um, I, was, I was tempted to get around to saying that I'm attracted by the theory, and it could be just a theory, that the reason that Christianity got up and going was because the Roman Empire, emperors wanted a, a agreement on one religion, which meant monotheism, really. And Judaism, obviously, would have been an option for them. But, and, and because of that, Judaism actually was allowed to prosper in many parts of the Roman Empire, in, in, like we know about it, Paul's journeys in Turkey and Greece and Rome and Cyprus and Malta, etc. And, and, um, but there was a problem with Judaism. Um, in having it accepted uh, as the uh, uh, as the accepted religion throughout the empire, one of the problems was dietary the dietary requirements of Judaism, and uh, people weren't that keen on the on the diet restrictions. Well, and was that just pork, or is there other stuff? I don't know. But the other was one was circumcision. Yeah, <laughs> fathers weren't that keen on circumcision, and uh, so. Uh, uh, and Christianity came along, and because uh, Christi Christians had come to accept that you didn't have to become a Jew before becoming a Christian, Christianity fitted the bill. It's monotheistic, didn't have the disadvantages of Judaism, and that was it. Now, but as well, that, the, I mean, now that you mentioned that's back, a theory, I'm not saying that this is the, true. How they used to circumcise back then, they didn't use a blade, the rabbi had to bite the foreskin off the child. I'm serious. So there's the argument could be made. I don't want to think have a rabbi bite off a rabbi bite off your foreskin, or someone puts water on your face. I'm going to put the water on my face, like. That's true, by the way. I'm not making that up. Don't blame me if that freaks you out. That's fucking. That's three thousand year old shit. There is something relevant to this. That's very, very topical. And it's female genital mutilation. And, and uh, about 200,000 women uh, have been genitally mutilated uh, in the world today. And it's prevalent in, primarily in Africa, but many other Asian countries. And it happens in Britain and probably in Ireland a little bit as well. There was a, a report last year that it was going on in Ireland, yeah. Yeah. And it is just horrific. And when you think of the extent to which... And, of course, the point of it was to diminish women's sexual appetites yeah. or enjoyment and again to control women's sexuality and when you think about the scale to which men went to control women yeah. it just is it's almost frightening yeah but we still do it um i in other ways like but wasn't it in, in catholicism where women were not permitted to orgasm that a man was uh, if, if a woman orgasmed it was a sin I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> I hope it's true, and it didn't just come to me in a dream. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you think there's elements of Catholicism that are essentially polytheistic because of the veneration of saints and things like that? I never thought about it. I, I think did. about that a lot. Do you? I do. Do you ever hear about the elite? There's illegal Catholic saints. There's a few of them. And one of them is a dog saint. 
He's an, uh, an Italian, I can't think of his fucking name, but he's, um, he's a dog that saved a baby. And they, uh, this village in Italy started worshipping him and drawing pictures of this dog in like a bishop's robe. And the church, the church made him completely illegal and now you have to, you have to secretly worship him to this day. Jesus Christ. They had a similar thing out in Kilrush where they worship an eel. <laughs> I'm joking. Here, what, what do you think of the current state of Irish journalism? Um, I, journalism is going through a, a difficult time now because of social media. Yeah. And also because the print media is... Uh, moving towards extinction uh, and uh, it's an issue it's a, it's a huge problem and I don't know how it's going to be resolved I assume that um, people will find through social media outlets ways of doing good journalism again and people will begin to appreciate it and will get uh, followings and attractions uh, because of it um, that's one reflection. Another reflection is that, in many ways, journalism, it's possible to do journalism better than it was ever done before yeah. because of the internet, that this, the information that's readily available now is so gigantic as compared to what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so it's possible to do things journalistically now that it wasn't possible to do before. But another point is that the trivialization of... of, uh, of um, public discussion uh, is really, uh, uh, for instance, um, look, at, look at our media and look at the obsessions they have about uh, Leo Varadkar's socks yeah. <laughs> or, or whether Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin will be the next teacher or where Mary Lou will be in government next time or uh, and it makes no difference whatsoever, not a tiny little bit of difference. Who's in government next time? Who's not in government next time? Whatever. It makes no difference at all because it will make no difference to people's livelihood or to, to people's welfare because they all think the same thing. And you'll never have journalists, particularly political journalists, writing about how Fianna Fáil, for instance, or the present government, how they, the policies that they espouse and the policies they agree to affects the lives of ordinary people. And... Just look at the scale of inequality we have in our society. Look, the, the numbers of people who are living in, in poverty, which is very, very high, our, our risk of poverty, very, very high. That we have very high levels of inequality in our society. Look at the problem of the housing. We're yeah. a hugely rich society. We can't provide housing, a basic uh, uh, requirement for people. Look at the, the health. And the point I was making earlier on about rich people are, are people better off, um, people in poor income groups dying prematurely by at least five years. 5,000 people die prematurely every year in this society, this is what this report said, because of inequality. And nobody bothers about it at all. Similarly with regard to... But where uh, are the journalists saying this? Yeah, similarly the sex abuse thing, I go on about the sex abuse, it's the Savvy reporting that showed that 200,000 people, women, 200,000 women have been raped in the course of their lifetimes and another 100,000 to 200,000 have been otherwise sexually abused. But 200,000 women raped in our society. It's just, in, in our society, 4 million people. 
It's just shocking. And the percentage and of that that actually go on to successfully convict their rapists in court is something like one percent. And one of the big problems about this case in Belfast is that suppose the women, suppose these guys are are acquitted and it may be properly uh, properly acquitted. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know about that. But but let's let's just suppose for a minute they're acquitted. Think of what that will do to women around in all of Ireland and elsewhere when, they're th when they've been raped and they're thinking of reporting to somebody. Of course they won't It's do terrifying. It. They'll, be, think, yeah. they'll be terrified of that. Look at the ordeal that woman was put through yeah. for seven days in the witness box. People will be terrified. If I have two daughters and if either of them were raped, I think I would say to them, don't go near the police, I'll get a big iron bar and break the legs of the people who did it. <laughs> and that's what... That's, is your reaction like that, Vincent? Because you, you have so little faith in the legal system when it comes to this type of when it comes to rape. I'm afraid so, yeah. Yeah. And, but but also, it's not treated with anything like the same. Sex abuse is not treated with anything. Its prevalence is so great that you think this is a major issue in our society. It's a peripheral issue at best. Mild political issue, which we get upset about every now and again. For instance, Tom Humphreys, uh, that journalist fellow who was yeah. uh, convicted of, of um, grooming a woman and raping her, a girl and raping her, and the outrage there was about her. I really was irritated about the outrage because I was thinking, how the fuck did you not know that this is an epidemic in our society? Yeah. And we don't treat it as an epidemic. There's no appreciation it's an epidemic, and it's a major problem that we need to do something about it. Anyway... That's, that's I mean, <laughs> the one positive out of that is that that's why the Me Too movement exists. It's an act of digital vigilantism because yes, the system yeah, does yeah, not work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, that's really good that that's happened, yeah. Um, well, it, puts, it, it, makes, it makes men feel less freedom to uh, commit, act, commit crimes that they feel they'd yeah. otherwise get away with. Can I ask you a question? Do you think that men, that we, us men, not just Irishmen, but probably generally, but let's, let's talk about just Irishmen, that we're fucked up with regard to women and sex generally? Um, absolutely, yeah, that's definitely. Um, I mean, well, what do you mean by fucked up? Well, yeah, how did you agree with me if you didn't know what I meant by fucked up? No, but, uh, no, for me, when you said fucked up, do I think we have, uh, when you said that to me, I, I, I thought we have a sense of power, sexual power and, and entitlement. I would agree with that, but then I had to go, what? That's my definition of fucked up. I wonder what Vincent's is. But the way we, the way that men often talk about women, for instance, the use of the word fuck, actually, is in itself... Is when you think about it, as I couldn't give a fuck. Just think of that. It's as though the most... It's devaluing the act of sex the, itself. The, the act of sex is most, the most useless thing you could have. Like yeah. it's, it's one of the most beautiful things one can have if you look at it um, um, properly. But the word cunt, unless you regard to women, I think that there's something really disturbed about that. That the word that we use to describe something, to, to give the worst description of a human being, happens to be the same word that refers to women's genitalia. There's something really disturbing and fucked up about that. Jeez, there I go again. Yeah. 
No, I mean... I was asking, do you think that's... Better? No, I'd agree with you, and... Uh, I mean, I was raised... Uh, as uh, Within the privilege of being, a, of being a man, you know? I never have to... I don't have to worry about my sexual safety at any point in my life. I don't have to worry about... I, I can go into Limerick City tonight and walk around at 3 o'clock in the morning and at no point am I worrying about being sexually assaulted and no point... No one wants to sexually assault me. Well, barring that, that would be my... <laughs> <laughs> but, like, yeah, it's... it's um, I never had to think about this shit until it was pointed out to me by women. And until it was pointed out to be my women, I, I was blissfully going about my life, just going, ah, you're overreacting. And then someone had to point it out to me and go, no, this is how it actually is for me as a woman. Um, I, I, no, I can't meet you there tonight. Why can't you meet me there tonight, you lazy bitch? Uh, because I can't go out at that time of night because people want to rape me. I'd never thought of it, you know. It needed to be pointed out to me explicitly. But it, it's, it's evident to more ordinary circumstances, like for instance, a woman walking along the street late at night when the street is fairly abandoned and there's somebody walking behind her. That woman is scared. Terrified. Usually yeah. scared. For instance, a woman in a lift, in, in, like if, in Ireland, it's not many high, very high rise buildings, but for instance, in America, uh, there's a woman in a lift on her own and a man gets in, she's immediately terrified. Yeah. And there's something wrong with the men's culture. And, that, and I think it's to do with our sense of what it means to be a man, the, the hard man, the fucking... Uh, yeah. What it means to be a man and the tough man. He's a hard man. And... Um, and the, but also, <coughs> taking it back to, we say, some of the text messages in that rugby trial, it's not, <coughs> not only us being elevated for being hard men, but being elevated for how much sex we can have and the, the quality, if, if the sex that we have is, I don't give a shit about her, it was just a ride, that is elevated within male, male culture as a positive thing. Yeah. When you're younger in particular, like. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I mean, all you can do is fucking, you talk to the lads coming up, the young lads coming up. Is it enough to talk to them because, because the culture, that's the culture, it's yeah. there. And, and there is a problem with masculinities, with, with us men, and it, the only way to address it is through education, but also through <coughs> the media and through, um, through uh, talking about it and acknowledging that it's an issue and, that, and pointing out to, to men that um, there's something disturbed about... about and, like, I mean, so. what I'd wonder, too, is, like, in sexual health classes that kids are given like when i was given sexual health classes it was delivered to me by a priest you know and i'm not that old now at least they have sexual health classes but i'd like to know how much of the sexual health classes that are delivered to young male children have to do with consent and have to do with empathy for the fear that women face by simply existing do you know what i mean because that for me like i said that was a huge eye-opener for me yeah, yeah. to realize like you were saying there about a woman alone in a lift that had to be beaten into me. That had to be really pointed out to me for me to believe it because I've never dealt with it my whole life. I've never worried about... Like, the worst that's going to happen to me is someone's going to rob my phone. Yeah. Do you know what? That's what I have to worry about. But no one wants to take my body like. On the programme that I did uh, on TV3 for 10 years, um, a feature was... I, I 
never bothered with the Twitter thing. Uh, partly because I... With the what thing? The Twitter thing. Trigger warning. Uh, Content warning. That uh, I, I didn't want to do so because I felt that if I tweeted, I would then do, do so impulsively at times and regret it. And I never bothered reading it either. Uh, but other people tell me, used to tell me that women on the programme would get the, the amount of abuse that was directed at them on the social media was really extraordinary. And this happens all the time and with any uh, women going on television on any programmes. They get terrible abuse and terrible um, denigration. And there's something really strange about, about, um, start about that. I've thought about that and I think what it is is that when, when two men argue there's the threat of uh, physical confrontation. And I think when men are arguing with a woman, they're unconsciously aware that there will be no physical confrontation, that the man will always win. So men unconsciously moderate their behavior with other men. That's why lads, when they get together, tend to have great banter. Because to elevate the conversation into argument could mean two men fighting, two men boxing heads off each other. And when they're online, if they have a woman, they go straight in with a load of violent language because she can't hit back and she's not going to hit back and that's what's in their head. That's just my theory about it. Anyway, yeah. 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 In your, your, in your, I haven't, I, I, I tried to get your book through Amazon and... Uh, no, there's not, they're out of print. They'll be in print. Yeah, uh, so I got it, yeah. But, um, and in your podcast, what are the themes, what are the big issues you raise? My big theme is... Uh, Mental health, mental health. I used to be a person who suffered from severe anxiety and depression when I was about 19. Um, so did I. You did as well, did you? Uh, yeah, around that time. When yeah. you were a young lad. Yeah. Yeah. And I overcame it. And now I'm able to sit in front of an entire audience and be completely relaxed and comfortable and so are you. So are you. But you have to wear a mask. Well, no, that's just so, like, I can go to Aldi and buy carrots and people don't say hot outside to me. Um, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in, in uh, fame in Ireland. Sure, you know yourself. You'd be going to a shop and people go, how are you getting on, Vincent? Do you know what I mean? Or they might go, I, 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 I didn't like what you said the other night on TV, Vincent. Um, for me, I want to avoid all of that shit. So I get to... Is that all it is, is it? That's the bones of it, yeah. Um, part of the, what's the flesh of it? What? What's the flesh of it? How do you mean the flesh you of it? You said that, that's the bones of why you wear a mask. What's the flesh of it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I just, uh, I, I, I started the Rubber Bandits thing in the year 2000 when Big Brother, when the first Big Brother was on television. And I got to see how disposable celebrity was. <coughs> And I got to see how, we say, the person who won Big Brother became the most famous person in Ireland and England for about two months and then slowly faded into nothingness. And <coughs> it scared the living shit out of me. And I don't think I ever want to be recognised in the street or I don't ever want to... Like, I get to go on television, I get to have a podcast, I get to write a book, but at the same time I get to live in Limerick and have a normal life and I wouldn't trade that for anything, you know? That's what you and said. And as well, being famous in Ireland. That's what you said was the bones of it. Now, I asked you what was the flesh of it. That is the flesh of it. That's no, you said that was that. You had already said that was the bones of it. 
No, tell us about the festival. Um, there must be other layers of issues there. Um, you're kind of picking up, this is a man who used to have social anxiety and now he happens to wear a mask in his face and he feels comfortable doing it with a mask in his face. Um, I, I, I don't know, like, anxiety is no longer a part of my life. Do you know, it hasn't been a part of my life for about 10 years and nor is depression. So, I don't know, I just, I'm blind by now, do you know what I mean? If I took the bag off, I'd just be some lad. And what's wrong with being a lad? Um, I just, I want to go to Aldi. I want to go to Aldi and like, <laughs> not be bothered by people. That is? That's about it. That's I'd about say it. there's more to it than that. But, <laughs> but the audience think there's more to it than that. Um, I what don't know, I, 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 haven't, I haven't tested it. I haven't. What did your mommy say about it? My ma. Yeah. She said, don't curse in front of Vincent Brown. <laughs> oh, Vincent, you ball boy. Um, yeah, that was the magnificent Vincent Brown. Someone who just, uh, he put me on a he put me on a spot at the end. He put me on the fucking spot, because that's what he does. That's what he does. He, do, he will not. He's an expert at, like, there's no dodging questions with, with that man. He will go straight at it. What did you really say? What did you really say? Fucking legend. So that was an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And again, apologies. Apologies for not giving you the full shebang this week. But I'm over in fucking Spain. And I don't have the facilities to give a decent podcast. To give a decent quality recording. So that's why I have the live podcasts on hand. In case of an emergency, you know. Um, It's better than doing nothing this week. Which I would never do. I'll always put out something for you. All right, God bless. Go in peace. Uh, have a lovely, have a lovely week. And I'm gonna be back to you next week with a normal, regular podcast hug. You delicious boys and girls. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 